Hello, everyone, and welcome. I'm John Pollock, along with Wei Ting, on Friday, June 11th. How are you, Wei? I'm doing well, John. Um, well rested. Had a, some time on the on the beach yesterday, so maybe got on the beach. A little, too, a little too much color, I, I feel. I think I'm a little burnt, to be honest, but I'm, I'm doing well. How are you? Uh, I'm doing okay. Today is very busy, but uh, we'll be more busy for you, because uh, tonight you are going to be uh, engaging in the now weekly doubleheader of SmackDown and AEW Dynamite, and we'll mention off the top that you're going to be live with Kate from Montreal to chat about maybe she's going to get in some... Uh, some ill-timed jokes about the loss of the Toronto Maple Leafs to the Montreal Canadiens. But the Montreal Canadiens have lots to brag about now. But you two will be live midnight Eastern tonight. All patrons, check it out on the Post Wrestling Cafe. Well, I wish I could be the one to set up those jokes, but I actually am completely unfamiliar with what's going on. So so they've moved on? Yeah. In the, well, the Montreal Canadiens, like after, I mean, the Toronto Maple Leafs were just kind of like a warm-up. Like, oh, that, that's cute. They're trying. And then blew past the Winnipeg Jets four straight. So now they're on. They're they're a series away from going to the Stanley Cup Finals. Wow. Okay. Well, good, good for them. I shall. The CN uh, Tower has eight. jumped provinces, and now the the CN Tower is supporting the Montreal Canadiens. This turned into an actual story in Toronto. I don't know why, but this is somehow uh, on the level of treason, I guess. Well, listen, you got to prioritize. You know the important events going on, and uh, our, our buildings, colors. Come on, that's, that's a big story. That's a, what's on everybody's minds. A sacred but act. I, I shall ask Kate tonight on Rewinda SmackDown, and uh, you know you will be missed, John, of course. But I'm looking forward to talking to Kate, not just about SmackDown, but getting her thoughts on AEW. She's somebody who watches everything very closely, so uh, I'm very curious to see what she thinks. And of course, we'll have plenty of time for all of our audience's Zoom calls. So that is available, of course, every Friday. Uh, tonight, this will be at midnight because uh, we'll have dynamite. So midnight tonight for all Post Wrestling Cafe patrons and available in our archive afterwards. By the way, we are putting uh, the dynamite reviews up on our YouTube channel. So to go subscribe afterwards to youtube.com slash post wrestling. Yes, uh, a lot of feedback we're getting on our YouTube channel. It's uh, the little engine that is growing up at post wrestling or youtube.com slash post wrestling. And we will be live there right after the UFC 263 card that you can check out Saturday night right after the pay-per-view. That's free for everybody. And we've got a preview show posted with Phil Chertok and Eric Marcotte chatting about Saturday's card, which way I know you just kind of uh, are in and out when it comes to MMA. Forget the pay-per-view on Saturday. I think you should spend maybe 15 minutes and just watch the press conference from Thursday, specifically Israel Adesanya and Marvin Vittori, as well as Nate Diaz, Diaz just openly uh, lighting up a joint and just smoking while these guys are cutting promos on each other. You know, I always have time for a Diaz brother press conference. Um, that to me it transcends the world of combat sports. So I'll definitely make time for that. And uh, your your post show tomorrow as well with the Phil. Phil. Just Phil. Yes, Eric Phil. will be uh, manning the website on Saturday. But tonight, uh, SmackDown. All we know so far is the Street Profits against Otis and Chad Gable. So. Square away your Friday night from 8 till 10. It's a big tag showdown. And then Dynamite, tape show from Daly's Place, has the Young Bucks and Brandon Cutler against Penta, Pac, and Eddie Kingston. Miro against Evil Uno for the TNT Championship. Christian Cage against Angelico, that I'm looking forward to. Hangman Page and 10 against Brian Cage and Powerhouse Hobbs. Nyla Rose versus Layla Hirsch. Lance Archer in action. The Pinnacle will appear. And Cody Rhodes makes a special announcement. Maybe he's going to try and bridge um, 
the UK fans back on board and we can all be uh, like Montreal and Toronto, that we can all be unified uh, for a common goal. But I would not say this is a, a dynamite that the the lineup is um, uh, jumps off the page at you. They're coming off, I would say, a dynamite last week that, that seemed to be definitely on the lower end of dynamite's usual quality. It's it's kind of felt that way, uh, not just in terms of you know um, the content of the show, but in terms of the ratings, of course. And so we try to see this week if the quality of the show will be any different. I definitely think it's been some of the weaker editions of Dynamite that we have seen throughout the the show's run. Um, so yeah, there'll be plenty to talk about. I mean, for the first time, actually, I feel like there's a bit more interest in even uh, what's going on in Impact than there is in AEW for the AEW Championship. Yeah, Impact did an interesting angle on Thursday where they did the summit with Tony Khan, Scott Demore, and Don Callis and set up for Saturday's Against All Odds Impact Plus special that it will be Kenny Omega against Moose, but it's taking place from Daly's place. And they actually made like logical sense out of this in that the Good Brothers have been booked on the Against All Odds show, which in theory is happening in Nashville, although it's been taped. But that means the Good Brothers cannot get involved in this match at Daly's place, they will be taking place in different states. So in storyline, there was a complete um, explanation of why this is happening at a different location. And I, I would say like Impact, they, it's it's a nice looking show that they have on, on Saturday night. So that is the storyline reasoning. Why, why do you think is the real reason that this is happening in Jacksonville? Um, I, I don't think like there's any like grand reason for it. I think it works into the story. And given that it's a daily's place, I guess it was, it was taped recently and it's just a way to have, uh, you know, a different location and probably, I, I don't know what really goes into the thinking. Like, I don't see any, uh, giant advantage to doing it at daily's place. It fit into the story and it gives just kind of a different backdrop to it. Uh, getting out of that empty arena, at Skyway Studios, I think it's it's not like you're going to have packed fans or anything, but I do think the the Daily's Place empty environment is superior to Skyway Studios. It'll be interesting to see how the broadcast change. Um, commentary teams, I imagine, will stay the same? I imagine so. I think it's going to be... Well, it, we had Josh Matthews filling in for the last uh, tapings because Matt Stryker was unavailable. So I imagine it's Josh Matthews and D'Lo Brown. Um, but they've also got... Um, we won't go through all the matches here, but the ones that stand out, Satoshi Kojima against Joe Doring, uh, Deanna Perrazzo defending the Knockouts title against Rosemary, uh, Rich Swan against W. Morrissey. I really don't like that name. I know it's his real name, but it's like W. Morrissey. You know, unfortunately, uh, going by Morrissey, I, I don't know if he's um, that much of a better choice. So um, uh, it would either be W or... I don't know. Will, Will? Morris Is that what the w E. <laughs> Morris E. Morris E. Dangerous. How about more? Yeah, more is E. More <laughs> is E. Less is more is. No. You and I did an unbelievable accomplishment here. We came up with way worse names than W. Morrissey, <laughs> which, as I started the sentence, did not think was possible. But there you go. Maybe he's going with the best of the available well, options that came to him. Why don't you contract them? And instead of W. Morrissey, Warrissey. What about it? Could he get away with taking Cass? Cass E. Cass E. Cassie. Mm. Cassie. I, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Bill. Can he go with Bill? Bill. Yeah, I think that, 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 that works. Yeah. Um, 
And then the other uh, attachment to this is that Sammy Callahan will team with Tommy Dreamer to take on the Good Brothers, and Callahan has been set up as the challenger for the winner of the Moose-Kenny Omega match for Slammiversary next month. Uh, so interesting that they're going with Sammy Callahan um, for, for for that big pay-per-view challenger spot, kind of, you know, Callahan is, you know, someone that is a pretty featured performer in Impact. I'll say just watching Impact a lot more regularly now. I think maybe it's too early to do this, but I hope at some point, if they've got a limited amount of Omega matches, I think Omega and Josh Alexander is about the most interesting match uh, that I would like to see um, off the Impact roster of different names that you have at your disposal. Uh, yeah, sure. I could see that. I, for me personally, I, I do think Callahan is up there in terms of uh, like the Impact rosters, um, maybe higher profile single stars, you know, uh, as far as interesting style matchups for uh, Kenny Omega. And uh, I'm actually, you know, interested to see what they come up with. You would, have, of course, have to assume that it would be Kenny winning that match. Way, if people listen to this podcast, uh, this video, and at the end of it, uh, someone doesn't like it. Do you think on the next post wrestling conference call that you're going to get upset and say, "I don't know why all of our listeners have to pay such close attention"? If you don't like it, don't listen. Um. Will I say that? I mean, if I hear enough negative comments and I get asked about it, there there could be a chance. Yeah. Did you hear any of the Paul Levesque conference call on Thursday? Uh, I did not, but I've, I've read the notes, and I'm familiar with the comment, yes. I think that this is happening it, – it's not – like, Hunter is usually very good on these calls, but I think that it is – I just think it comes off really um, – just poor, the way – it just seems to be such a, a disdain at times for – like, what he was citing about – Fans trying to get ahead and figure out where stuff is going, you know, like the general principles of fandom. I just thought it was like, what a, I don't know. It just seemed to me a very, you know, you might have just caught him at a bad moment, uh, a bad day. But on these conference calls, I think you kind of have to be on uh, for these. And I just thought it was like a really poor way to come across to your fan base of, like, God forbid, people are going to have uh, critiques of your show, that they are going to imagine where things are going and the message was largely just shut up and enjoy the show and don't think well i haven't heard the clip i've only read a recap of it so i can't really specifically speak but i mean this is it's not uncommon to have any fandoms where uh fans will dissect minutia and criticize every single little aspect and be unhappy if it doesn't go their way. And from a creator standpoint, I can see the frustration in having to deal with all those expectations. Um, and maybe there was a moment where, you know, I would say Triple H is somebody who is typically very controlled and very, um, mm, you know, calculated in the way he handles statements like this. And, and uh, knows the audience he's talking to when he's doing these conference calls. Like, it's like he's very good at knowing his audience and... You know, he, he is. He comes off very calculated and and measured with, with what he says. Uh, and this was one instance of him. Uh, you could just see like him being uh, more emotional, I would say, with a response that I think it's fine to maybe vent uh, privately. I think it's another to go on a conference call and just, just a bad look. Not to say others are not going to be above that kind of thing. Um, I just find it a little tiresome at times when it just seems that... <laughs> You know, they, they have constructed the, this term for, for years at this point of 
the internet wrestling fans as though that's like this this little group of people that just hate everything. It's like it's it's just applies to anything critical we put under this umbrella of internet wrestling fans, even though that will likely cover 99% of your audience that would be online. And that you can just simply dismiss any critique as, well, that's just the vocal minority known as the internet wrestling community instead of taking anything anything to heart. There's going to be unfair criticism of your product. There's also going to be, I think, very level-headed, fair takes about your NXT product that I think has slowed down over this past 18-month period. That I think for Paul Levesque as being front and center, uh, it just comes across from your, your, your fan base that this is like, if you're a fan and you are, you spend your money on this product, you give them two hours of your time every week and to be scolded. I just think that's, it, it just seems like there is a certain level of just uh, entitlement that comes on behalf of the company of what it expects of its fan base. And here is our guidebook of how you are to act as a fan that I think a lot of other places, uh, they're not going to get away with that, with their, with their fan base of you're telling us how to act. We are the consumers of this product that are the ones actually spending money on this product. Do you think he's saying all that about all of the criticism, all of the fans, or just those select fans that he believes are overly negative? Well, again, these are just wide... These are just wide sweeping uh, statements that he made where he doesn't he doesn't narrow in on a specific criticism or a specific uh, group or anything like that. It's just it's just fans. He just puts it in like quotations like there's fans out there that just hate everything and uh, just want to find out and spoil the experience. It's like you're never being specific about any of this. It's just ranting. It's just ranting. Well, how and- can you be that specific on a conference call? Well, well, what are you what question. are you referencing? Did, did these you what obviously was the question? The question was actually about uh, talent moving up to the main roster and some of them not uh, not moving as quickly up to the main roster or not finding success on the main roster. And then he went on this whole sidebar rant. Okay, so I don't even know if there was necessarily room to specify any particular. I mean, it sounded like he did. He said. There are some fans, but again, like we're making a whole lot out of, out of, I think, a small answer, in my opinion. Well, that's fair. I think it's just it's more indicative of, to me, something that we see over and over where it comes to a like criticisms of the product. And it is just simply brushed off as, you know, it's it's a group of people that hate wrestling or like you're giving it oxygen. You're giving this argument, uh, you know, it obviously means something that you feel that there is a more negative connotation towards NXT than maybe two years ago. Uh, so that's, you know, to me, it just was somewhat telling the frustration, showing his card, so to speak, on this conference call of what I'm sure are his legitimate feelings. Uh, but I think some justified, but other aspects not. I think you can you can look at valid criticism of a product and to me, it's, you can't just dismiss all criticism as just people that are have like some kind of ill intention towards your product. Because I think there's a lot that can be taken from valid criticism out there. But that's going to be subjective. Yeah. Man, and I, we, I couldn't tell whether or not from reading a recap of this that he was specifying all criticism or just those people that, you know, maybe give unfair criticism. But in, in either case... Um, Doing any sort of this type of PR is, you know, can be seen as a political act. Um, And you have to watch your words because if you say the wrong thing, even if you don't really mean it, it's going to be blown up and requoted and put into headlines in various ways and interpreted in various ways. And 
if some people came across with the opinion that he was trying to criticize every single type of fan, then perhaps definitely it was a bad look for Triple H. Uh, I want to spend a bit of time talking about the, well, mid-season finale of Dark Side of the Ring. They finished up their uh, sixth episode on Thursday night, and they're going to take a break, resuming in September. And this was the hour-long look at the Dynamite Kid, Tom Billington. And I thought this was its very interesting, because when you look at the three most-watched episodes of Dark Side of the Ring, you have Owen Hart, Chris Benoit, and Brian Pillman, who all share that uh, foundation of Stampede Wrestling uh, in Calgary. And I would imagine, you know, Tom Billington certainly falls into that category. And I'm curious to see how well this one does, because, you know, Tom Billington is a very, uh, I think tragic figure would not be completely accurate because that would suppose that none of this was brought on by himself. Uh, he was a guy that drove his body to the absolute limits and then some paid an unbelievable toll and was somebody that, you know, left a lot of wreckage in his path. And in this documentary, they had you know, some of the, the key people they interviewed was his former wife, Michelle, uh, two of his three children, and and then a lot of his friends. And yet at the end of this, even after that just um, brutal reenactment of this New Year's Eve um, fight at his home where he pulls a gun on his wife – at the end of it, you're still getting a lot of, you know, complimentary memories of Tom Billington, like that there for all this man's flaws, um, including like his wife who stated she she still loved this person, just did not love the circumstances of what he was going through. And she brought up, you know, the fact that, you know, I could tell in that near the end that I think she looked at this. She did not want to see this come out as some teardown of Tom Billington stating the fact that, you know, mention the fact of CTE and depression, which very well could have been issues he was uh, dealing with at the same time. I mean, this, like that scene at the end, and like, it, it's a pretty haunting scene. And uh, what could have been, uh, that could have been very, very tragic as well. When you look at just all the elements of this guy who was spiraling out of control and probably the absolute best, situation was the fact that he was sent back to England and just away from all of this. But I mean, he's a guy who, I mean, died just a couple of years ago and, you know, his, his career is largely over by his early thirties. It was another pretty difficult watch. I have to say, you know, um, in this one, I think, uh, these are all really interesting character studies, but this one I find maybe a little bit more gray because you have many of his, I mean, the you know, to me, like the biggest victim of it all is the children and it's it's his wife. Um, and, you know, at least from the wife's perspective, she has seemed to forgive him, seemed to has seemed to forgive him, you know, for many years. And in fact, is her seems to be her biggest defender in this episode. Um, and, you know, when it comes to that, like I definitely at least want want to pay attention and want to know and understand where she is coming from before, you know, just simply perhaps seeing a lot of the actions portrayed in this and being outraged. Now, from what I understand, there are plenty more incidents that, you know, are covered in this book by himself, like by his own admission that aren't covered in, in something like this episode. Maybe not not enough time, but um. the, the gun incident, that's, you know, the central one in, in this documentary. I mean, 
this is also something that, I mean, Billington in that CNN feature that you did see clips of that came out after the Benoit uh, murder-suicide, like Billington acknowledges he did pull a gun on her. And, you know, he, in the CNN piece, like he almost tries to downplay it uh, by stating, yeah, but there were no shells in it. So like that somehow was uh, his way of mm-hmm. almost like justifying that is, I, I was just, uh, I, I was just trying to intimidate, but there was never bullets in the gun. And uh, like, that's his rationale for this. So it's an, an incident that was known prior to this one. And, you know, God knows what else, what other um, things were going on. Like when it comes to people in the industry, you know, the stories of Tom Billington are about as sadistic as are out there. Um, they, they told the one of the wrestler, Mitch Snow, that they just terrorized this guy. And it was, you know, there are ribs that are lighthearted to just kind of take the ease of the road, take that edge off of people and to get an honest laugh. And then there's this that is just, you know, some of the, the ribs attached to Dynamite Kid and Davy Boy Smith were just so far beyond the pale. It was just malicious activity that was messing with people's livelihoods, their health. And, you know, in, in the case of Jacques Rougeau, I mean, you, you have this, this escalates into something where, my God, it's like, this could have escalated to the point of someone being killed because of what was involved and the attack on each other's ego that, that came from this, that results in Jacques Rougeau and the story had always been that Jacques Rougeau had come to the back and his gear had been totally destroyed and he suspected Billington of the act, uh, which Billington denied doing, uh, and then and then lays out Jacques Rougeau in front of everybody. And Jacques Rougeau just stews about this until he comes back and either uses a roll of quarters or brass knuckles and drills dynamite in the face. And that that part was all known what I had never heard before was this whole involvement of Dino Bravo and what turns out from Jacques' side to be an empty threat about mob retaliation if Billington came for revenge on Jacques Rougeau. Like, just crazy stuff that's being discussed here that, I mean, under normal circumstances, you would just be highly skeptical of. But, you know, when this story is presented to Rougeau, like, he largely ex- accepts that, yeah, I I did do this, but... There was never a real mob hit on Billington. I made up a person's name to Dino Bravo, knowing Dino would go back to put the fear into Dynamite Kid. Like, pretty horrendous stuff that was going on here. It's crazy to think that all of this was somehow taking place backstage in a work environment. And um, maybe it just kind of gives you a bit, bit of a glimpse of that. What sounded like a pretty awful, overly competitive culture involving not just that but like you know the great copious amounts of uh, steroids and other drugs that seemed the to travel to that was place. insane at the time like you're talking three cities a night where i mean you had guys on the road non-stop they're crisscrossing the country it's the drugs like you're taking you're taking stuff to get up stuff to go to sleep you're you've got to maintain your look when i mean just it's unbelievable what these guys are on. And then you're throwing in all of this mental anguish uh, on top of it. Like these were ticking time bombs in this locker room. Yeah. You know, go, but going back as far as, you know, his wife is concerned. I mean, I think in much of the argument she makes is that she wants to be able to move on. She wants her children to be able to move on from something like this and to continue to perhaps bring up reasons for them to be angry at him. Maybe is one of those things that's, preventing it but you know they they also seem to have their own 
at least like you know the oldest child and and the wife like they 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 probably on their own private time had their own um resolutions with the guy you would hope um but in either case i don't think it's for me to personally judge whether or not they should forgive um this person that's something entirely up to them uh but you know as far as like the image of dynamite kid being presented on this particular episode it showed him as an, a tremendous influencer and you don't even have to like you know all you have to do is really watch some of these clips and then see the time period in which they occurred and you see exactly his mark on the industry up until today it's it's just it's so evident um they make a case for that but then of course they also you know talk about the tremendous sacrifice that he, he supposedly you know gave for his body um, that ultimately resulted in the end of his career and then the, the great deterioration of his personal life. So I can't really say coming out of this, I'm a fan of Dynamite Kid whatsoever. In fact, makes me hard to watch his matches knowing what the person he was behind the scenes. Um, but, you know, he is definitely a complex person and a complex case that, you know, the documentary, at least some of the subjects, try to give some justification for. You have a lot of people who look at him in very high regard that, you know, like like a Mick Foley, you know, like a Dance Bivey or Scott McGee. Um, but as far as, like, what is presented on the surface, there are a lot of actions that this guy does that make it hard to to be a fan, no matter how good the wrestling is. Yeah, and I mean that, I mean, it's it's so fascinating to look at how, like this was the idol of Chris Benoit, and yet he would be the other subject that I think fans have that constant uh, struggle with reconciling heinous actions with such a phenomenally talented performer. And listen, that's when you are having these discussions about separating art from the artist, like you just have to call it out for what it is. A portion of that equation comes with how great was this person? it becomes a lot easier to discard a performer that isn't really going to make any, like if, if you didn't take great enjoyment from a specific wrestler, yeah, you don't have to watch any of their matches again. And it should, it shouldn't maybe be weighted that way, but it's going to be it. When you look at fans that like, what did this performer provide me? Well, in the case of Tom Billington or Chris Benoit, these are two of the greatest wrestlers many people had ever seen. And their influence, as you mentioned, very much felt uh, among this current generation and and yet th there are some that will easily be able to separate the two and others that can't. And I totally see that with the, the dynamite kid of it's not just the idea that there are that they're completely separate things either, because you have to look at the toll he paid physically that had to have crossed over and affected that health and affected his well-being to to such a degree uh, and probably someone that as well, like got into this industry with the stories of having like a small man complex. This is someone that arrives at Stampede in 1978 and is around 180, 185 pounds and is introduced to steroids and gets up in the WWF. Like he's up to like 225. So look at that. And still would have been considered small by the standards of the era. Um, you know, there, there is that it's the fact that this guy was training in England at the age of 13. This is, you know, this is a hard industry to come up to uh, come up through in the 70s into the 80s. Like Stampede was a territory that, I mean, it was very taxing 
mentally and physically on its performers. And, you know, there were a lot of unsavory figures that came through that territory. Like this is all kind of informing like the, the man that Tom Billington becomes and what he is around and what he assimilates into. So, um, you know, I, I, I find it very difficult at the end that, you know, you you can look at examples of uh, of issues that people are dealing with at the same time there is, you know, a a consequence at the end for your actions. And I thought I thought Mick Foley was really insightful and had the firsthand experience of someone that gets torn apart by Dynamite Kid and gets his jaw dislocated uh, in a squash match and noting that. Once you become a bigger star than you can ever imagine, you end up paying for it every day for the rest of your life. And that's that's a very true statement, I think, in many cases, that in what it took uh, for a dynamite kid to reach a certain level was also going to mortgage his health and well-being for the rest of his life. And I think Mick Foley would, could very well uh, understand that aspect that he states in his recent biography of you know, this physical toll, knowing that I'm not going to be in this industry much, much longer. My goal is to keep my family financially secure. And I understand the trade-off here of my body for the comfort of my family. Yeah, I think Foley is perhaps the most appropriate person to be able to speak about something like that to a mass audience, because I would say he's probably one of the most recognizable faces when it comes to that sort of, uh, you know, um, uh, equation. But um, the big difference I would say between the two is that Mick Foley made those sacrifices and still seemed to stay a good person throughout the rest of his life. There and never no fell into stories. drugs or painkillers, alcohol. Mm-hmm. Like this was a guy that, I mean, th- that guy had an unbelievable, um, whether you want to call it like internal code or just an extreme, um, ability to take all of this pain and look at the telltale signs of others that had gone down that path and to avoid it like that is remarkable when you look at some of the scarier cases in pro wrestling and that Mick Foley never went down that dark path when it came to drug use mm-hmm. yeah and so you know I feel like much some of the argument in this show is comes from like perhaps his wife you know defending her ex-husband due to the causes of CTE and due to depression. And I think those are actually very serious things that should be looked into without having known like any sort of concrete evidence though, like simply being presented the facts again, makes it kind of difficult. Now I'm not going to begrudge anybody who is a fan of the Dynama kid who grew up watching the Dynama kid or, you know, has gotten into his work. Like, you know, it's like music or like any, any sort of art form or like, you know, like using a product of a, like if you're using an Apple computer, I mean, Steve Jobs wasn't necessarily a good person, but we all enjoy our iPhones. Um, you know, being the thing is, is like wrestling is is obviously very different from you know Steve Jobs creating an iPhone because you have the character's face on the thing that you're watching every single day. It's you know they are integral in the production of it. It's a hundred percent or fifty percent at least. You know, up to them how good of the match is. So it, it, it could be a, a lot more difficult. So, but, you know, ultimately it's up to the viewer and I don't necessarily think there's a right or wrong answer. It's, it's completely personal. No, I, I think I, I'm always hesitant when it's, you know, other people kind of dictating what your comfort level is going to be. That's to the individual. I mean, if you can sit down and watch something and you, you don't want to know this side like that, that's fine. Um, I thought it was such a sad uh, visual that Julie Hart shared in this, where she said the last time that she was with Tom Billington, it was just him sitting there 
watching hours of his matches with Tiger Mask. I thought that was just such a depressing story to hear of what is going through as he's realizing I can no longer do this. And I'm, I'm in the prime of my life, like 30, 33, he's pretty much done. And you're talking about in an industry where, you know, people are not even hitting their peak yet at 33. Yeah, I believe her, you know, to paraphrase her, she said it was like, there she was, you know, sitting there watching the end of greatness. And that's really sad to think about, you know, somebody who is that dedicated. I mean, it's sometimes like I think about um, similar stories to people that are deeply involved in uh, athletic endeavors like, you know, the Olympics or even the UFC where careers often end early. Yeah. You, you are so obsessed about this one singular goal and one singular task. And then sometimes if it's as early as in your 20s where it's all completely over and what do you do afterwards? Um, unfortunately, he didn't seem to find any sort of identity beyond, you know, his dedication to his professional wrestling career. And, you know, um, I'm sure there are plenty of other things affecting maybe the, the, the rest of his life as well. Yeah, so much of his later years are... You know, it, it feels like he was he was so reclusive, and and yet in 1999, uh, his book came out, and you know his book was pretty brutally honest. I mean, it doesn't go into you know some of the stories here, like the, the New Year's Eve uh, debacle, but um, you know there's there's still a lot. He's very critical of himself. He does not come across as a very savory figure, um, and that's in his own words, uh, along with his uh, his co-author, and then. I don't know if you remember this, but this was when uh, the law was running a number of different sites, including the Dynamite Kids. And every month, Jeff Merrick would do an audio interview with Tom Billington. And it just it seemed like that was like where he was the most comfortable in the public eye was like that one year period uh, or so while that website was running. And it included him. Uh, doing a show with Chris Benoit, the two of them together, and then Benoit bringing him backstage to a WWF show in Sheffield at the end of 2000, like where he, you know, here he is, he's confined to a wheelchair at this point, going to a WWF show, which would have been the first show of the from the WWF he had attended since leaving the company 12 years earlier. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, again, kind of haunting to think about some of the, these connections, but... Yeah, stylistically, you watch those two, they, they are, they're, they almost look like clones of each other. Yeah, yeah very much so. It, it's unfortunate that, you know, Brett didn't participate in this one because I think Brett is, you know, someone that held Tom Billington uh, to such a high uh, degree. I mean, he believed that Dynamite did more than anyone to influence the, the future of the industry, Um and, you know, for those that haven't or don't understand the connection with with Julie Hart being in this documentary, she is the older sister of Michelle. So Michelle was married to Billington. Julie was married to Brett. So and Brett, you know, would have like when Michelle w would have the big fights with Tom, like that's where they went. They went to Julie and Brett's house with with the kids. And, you know, they would have been front and center for all of that. And I'm sure Brett saw all of the good and more than enough of the bad, uh, probably knew him. You know, n not as close as anyone in the industry, but especially in the earlier days, probably very, very close. I could imagine. Yeah, I was, you know, in my mind trying to like figure out that entire family tree, especially that particular like generation, because you had Brett who married Julie, who was a sister of Michelle. 
uh, and so Brett and Dynamite were brothers-in-law. He was yes. also brothers-in-law with, of course, Davy Boy, who is cousins with Tom Billington. So it's like a weird kind of like crazy triangle um, where everybody is somehow related to everybody else. Double. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so anyway, those uh, – any other thoughts on on the documentary? Like I, th- uh, I thought – Learning about the Halcyon trick was like – first of all, I don't even – I didn't know what Halcyon was. Oh, so yeah. like when, when Scott McGee was like, oh, he Halcyon them. I'm like, Halcyon? What is that? Is that like a wrestling move? No, it's a date rape drug that he would just randomly give to. Uh, and, and sadly, not that uncommon that this this was shit that went on, you know, in in wrestling when it came to. Oh, again, like the scope of you explain what a rib is to someone, it's got a much wider definition in the seventies or eighties, specifically here in this uh, time period we're looking at of what was considered uh, a rib versus what would probably be defined by most as a straight up crime. Yeah, yeah, like different culture, I guess. So there you go. I th- I thought it was, you know, they it was a very good episode. I thought that they, you know, the the family I think added a lot. Um it, it was notable that his son Merrick was not interviewed for this. Uh I, I don't know what was involved in that, but uh, two of the children did speak and uh, we can finish on that. Like Bronwyn, his oldest daughter, you know, went on her own unannounced to find her dad in in the UK and got to at least have a positive memory of her father at the end. And that's that's amazing, because when you look at the timeline, when that New Year's Eve thing happens with the gun, she's six years old. And we think of that as really young. You absolutely can comprehend what you're seeing at the age of six. Um, and, mm-hmm. you know, for her to be able to have that, I like I'm happy for her that she can at least have um, at least have that kind of moment with her father. Uh, Amaris, however, is the other daughter who never even met Tom because Michelle is pregnant with her while th- this incident happens in the end of 1990 and clearly ha- has a much different view. And you can see, you know, she shares a lot in this of just what she has gone through and hearing about this story um, right before that CNN piece aired, and it clearly did a lot uh, to her. I can't imagine, like, the effect of, you know, only knowing your father through story, only knowing your father through, you know, other people's account. And, you know, from the sounds of it, his her mother gave her a great account of her father who he was, what a great, you know, maybe husband at at the time he was and what a great professional wrestler he was. And then just to kind of have all that defeated through what, what was revealed to be, you know, a white lie, but nonetheless a lie. Um, I imagine, you know, you, you'd start to question a whole lot about your upbringing and about your life. So hopefully she's at the age now where she's been able to work through a lot of that. Um, but you know, as, as far as her oldest child, I mean, you know, to me, like it, it shows. I think that the the maybe the the benefits of forgiveness. You know, like when it comes to uh, some things are just simply unforgivable. But at least in this case, this family seems to have been able to move on with something like this, and and you have to be able to forgive if if that's achievable. And she was able to achieve that. So that that was like a nice little ending for her. And so when the series resumes, uh, season three will continue in September and the episodes will be on 
Johnny Canine, the WWF steroid trial from 1994, which is going to be very interesting. Number one, um, you, you look at the the hour-long nature of that one. That's a very complex story. And it's going to feature Jerry McDivitt, who has been uh, for decades now um, the the lawyer that the WWF has has leaned upon uh, for all of these major cases and is a a fascinating figure, and it's quite the get that tar- Dark Side of the Ring was able to get Jerry McDivitt. Uh, then episodes on FMW, The Plane Ride from Hell in 2002, Luna Vachon, XPW, and Chris Canyon. Mm-hmm, yeah. Um, I think it's been a pretty good season thus far with, you know, they all haven't all been great. I was very disappointed with the Warrior one, but at least for the most part, I think they've, they've all been very... At the very least, very entertaining, uh, if not insightful. So, yeah, the the series continues to move on very strongly. All right. That's going to wrap up our news update. Uh, but we will have a, a news update coming out on the site later today with uh, some more of my thoughts on the, uh, the Dynamite Kid episode. Tonight is Rewind to SmackDown, midnight Eastern for all members of the Post Wrestling Cafe with Waiting and Kate from Montreal. And it's a packed weekend. Man, we've got... Uh, those shows tonight, there's a Bellator card tonight, UFC tomorrow night, Against All Odds, and then Sunday is TakeOver in your house. Yes, with our friends at Up Next, you can probably watch live with those guys at twitch.tv. Is it twitch.com now? Either one. Twitch.com slash Up Next Podcast. As well, quick plug here for MCU Later that just dropped with me and WH Park that uh, covers the first episode of Loki. So you can hear me and WH talk all about that right now on our Patreon. If you're a non-patron, we've decided to release this one on Saturday morning. So look for that in your free feed. And if you like it, consider signing us up, signing up to join us for the rest of the month. Yes, that will be a a weekly feature for members of the Post Wrestling Cafe. And last plug is... uh, for the debut of the Nubian Wrestling Advocates this Sunday at postwrestling.com, Nate Milton, along with Chris Ely and Andrew Thompson, will be on the show. Uh, Rich Fan is going to be joining them. Uh, they've got a great debut episode coming up Sunday. And for a little tease, I interviewed Nate Milton. That's up on the free feed for everyone to check out, chatting a number of different subjects and promoting Sunday's launch here at Post Wrestling. So very happy to have the Nubian Wrestling Advocates officially part of the Post Wrestling family. Check out the theme song created by Righteous Reg that Nate just posted. It's fantastic. Awesome stuff. So go check out postwrestling.com. Go there, bookmark it, and just stay there all day long. It's uh, what better what better use of your time. So for waiting, I'm John Pollock, and thank you for watching our post-news update.